All right, well, good morning. We are continuing our series, Suggestion Box, a look at the book of Habakkuk. You know, suggestion boxes are kind of a thing of the past. You'll still find them from time to time in businesses, but uh, with the invention of Yelp and Google reviews and that type of thing, a lot of times suggestion boxes are put on blast for the world to see online and and even newer kind of uh, implementation of this is the business can respond to you now so you can you can get feedback right away so be careful what you say and when you say it and because if you're lying they will put you on blast but we're kind of looking at this process it's a similar process suggestion box where last week we looked at the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter one and in those four verses if you didn't get a chance to listen to the sermon I want to challenge you at some point to go back and look at it not because I think I did this amazing job or it was some great work of oratory expression but because it gives us a really clear view of what our relationship with God can be like and how honest we can be with him and how we can have some really real discussions with God. And so I want to challenge you to go back and look at that sermon over the first four verses, to read those first four verses, to maybe do some study of your own, because it's really important that we have a real relationship with God. And that's kind of what this thing is all about. So last week we looked at those first four verses and in those four verses, Habakkuk is just... (laughs) upset. He, he can't quite wrap his head around why God is allowing injustice and violence and all of these things to happen in Judah and why he doesn't seem to be uh, doing anything. It's his first complaint. He's angry. There's so much despair amongst the people. He cries out to God in search of action and understanding. Why, God, do you just seem to not care? Well, today we get to look at God's response, and we will find that God very much does care. And I'm excited to dive into this because I think that, one, the first four verses show how we can be honest with God and how we can be open with God and how we can have real conversations with God. But these next few verses can show sometimes how when we do that, we do so with not quite having the full picture. And so we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter one, verses five through 11. And this is God's response to Habakkuk. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Now, I don't know about you, but if God talked to me this way, if he told me to look, watch and be utterly amazed, I'd be a little worried. I'd be a little nervous. Okay, God's about to shock me. It's a shock and awe campaign. It's coming down the pipe. Not sure what to do about this. He goes on to say, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Okay, now I'm a little more nervous. Even, he says, if you were told, I am going to raise up the Babylonians. This is not good, if you didn't know. They're often referred to as the Chaldeans as well. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on guilty people whose own strength is their God. 
So again, those first four verses, Habakkuk gets to cry out to God and complain to God, really, that why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you listening? Why aren't you acting? And in verse five, God finally gets to respond. And his response is something. Look at the nations, watch, and be utterly amazed. This response is not just to Habakkuk, but the entire nation of Judah. What he's telling them is, you are too close to this situation. You are only seeing what's happening in your nation. You're only seeing what's happening right now to you. You're too nearsighted. Often, we can't see what God is doing because we aren't looking beyond our current circumstances to see what is actually taking place. And if this isn't the realest representation of life struggles, I don't know what is. I know for me personally, a lot of times when I am dealing with trials, when I'm dealing with temptations, when I'm going through all sorts of spiritual warfare, I can't look beyond those moments, that time that I'm in the throes of battle. And and it consumes me and my, all my thoughts, and, and my vision doesn't extend beyond that moment to see what great things God might bring out of this or what God is actually trying to accomplish through this battle and through this warfare. I have met very few people who, like King David in Psalm 34, 1, will extol the Lord at all times. We'll extol the Lord at all times. We'll honor the Lord at all times. We'll, we'll, we'll bow to the Lord at all times. Instead, what happens is we tend to become hyper-focused on the trial. And when we become hyper-focused on the trial, it leads us down the path of anxiety, depression, and exasperation at our circumstances. And that's where Habakkuk finds himself because he was hyper-focused on the trial. He could only see what's happening in Judah. He can only see the violence before him. He can only see the injustice that is taking place against him and his neighbors. He can't see what's happening elsewhere because he is only focused on that which is right in front of him. Why isn't God moving? Why are you, God, allowing this to happen? Well, maybe like Habakkuk, we just aren't seeing the big picture. We are instructed in times of trouble, in times of trial, in times of stress and anxiety, in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, to not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a promise. That is a promise. And that's what we are supposed to do. But this is the ideal and not the standard practice. This is how we should handle things. It's often not. Instead, we do the opposite. We become hyper-focused. We only see how we are being wronged in the instant, in that moment, and it just consumes our every thought. And nothing else, nothing else is allowed to occupy our space. God tells those in Judah to look at the changing political climate. That's really what he's telling them. You need to look at this changing political climate because things are about to swiftly be different. They are going to be so incredibly changed, right? So incredibly changed. And what God wants Habakkuk to understand, to know what God wants, okay? What God wants for the nation of Judah to understand is this, 
their sin will not go unchecked. That's one of Habakkuk's complaints. Neighbors are sinning against neighbors and there's no repercussions. Well, God says that is not so. That is not the case. Their sin will not go unchecked. They have not murdered justice, right? Last week, Habakkuk complained that part of the issue was that the unjust were sowing a hymn into the righteous. And so they were corrupting them. And we talked about how the wealthy landowners were kind of paying off the judges so they could have their way. Well, God's saying, I see what's taking place. Justice does not come from these men. They are a placeholder. Justice actually comes from me. It's foundation. It's roots are within myself and within my character. They not only have not murdered justice, they couldn't if they wanted to. And justice is not sleeping. It's coming. It's coming. As I think about this, uh, you know, I'm, I've told you guys this. I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd. If you didn't know that, now you do. There's a scene uh, in the seventh book, and the book's better. If you didn't, like, I know I'm one of those people, but if you've only seen the movies, do yourself a favor, read the books. They are so much better. The movies themselves are good, but in the first installment of the seventh movie, they're at a wedding, right, for a couple, the Weezy's older brother, and they're kind of all in hiding right now because the, the Lord Voldemort, the evil guy, and his followers are rising. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a point here. It's going to make sense, right? And all of this stuff is happening, and people are kind of just oblivious to it and they don't want to believe it and all this injustice is taking place and the people who are supposed to be punishing it from early on weren't doing anything about it and there's this scene where uh, an Orin and Kingsley Shacklebolt sends forth a Patronus. Uh, this is really nerdy, I know. But it's like this little it's like this little ghosty character type and he sends forth this message to this wedding and he tells them this. They're coming. The ministry is falling. They're coming. Right Now, in that case, the evil's coming, but I picture God in this moment. God in this moment where Habakkuk is saying, where are you? Why is violence taking place? Why is there so much injustice? Why are things not fair? Why aren't they being punished? And God, in a thunderous whisper, just says, it's coming. It's coming. I can see like Dwayne The Rock Johnson eyebrow up. Oh, it's coming. Right? Like God's letting know, hey, don't worry. You're asking for it. Oh, it's coming. We're going to take care of it. And it's coming in a way that they would never expect. So unbelievable are God's actions that he tells Habakkuk and the nation of Judah, even if I were to tell you what I'm about to do, you couldn't comprehend it. You would not believe it. The Babylonians, which I told you oftentimes we see them in scripture referred to as the Chaldeans, they are coming. And this is not good. Like it is, it is the opposite of good. It is very bad. It is very, very, very bad. You see these hardened sinners of Judah, you swift, angry foxes who think that you are bad men, who think that you are taking advantage of your neighbor, who think that you have one up on the world around you. Oh, your punishment is coming. And it's coming in the form of the Babylonians. And, and you may be these hardened sinners, but... You're not the Babylonians. No, you're not them. You think that you've seen violence? I'm going to bring these Babylonians. They're going to show you violence. You think you've seen injustice? Oh, no, no, no. The Babylonians will bring you 
injustice. They are feared, Scripture tells us. They are dreaded. They are an undeniable force who laugh at kings and fortified cities who sweep across the world, the known world at this time, and take everything in their path. In short, Judah does not stand a chance. You have sowed, now you will reap. This is the character of God. And he is gracious. He is gracious. We see his graciousness in the fact that it has taken this long for the Babylonians to come and now take care of business. He has tried and tried and tried and tried to bring about correction. It wasn't taking place, so now correction's being brought. God is gracious up to the point where you have overstayed your welcome in his grace because you are not accepting that gift and now it's coming. It is coming. One of the best lines in this scripture in these verses 5 through 11 in Habakkuk chapter 1, in the very same line, they are compared to wolves at dusk and vultures in the same sentence. They are not only the fiercest of predators, but they are also the hungriest of scavengers. They kill and they take and they leave nothing in their wake. I wasn't going to say that, but it, it just rhymed too well. They are both hunters and scavengers. Jeremiah, who we talked about last week, is a contemporary of Habakkuk. They're living and existing at the same time. He actually had this to say about the Babylonians in Jeremiah 5.17. They will devour your harvests and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. They are, in short, the opposite of what God's chosen people should be. And yet in this instance, they are his chosen instrument to bring about justice. What do we take away from this? How do we look at this clump of six, seven verses, five through 11? How do we look at these verses and apply them to our lives? What does it tell us? about God. Well, the first thing it tells us, and you should have comfort in this, is that justice prevails. Justice prevails. God very much cares about justice. He very much cares about right versus wrong and punishing wrong. And punishment will come for wrong. It will absolutely come for wrong. It may not happen in the way that you expect. It may not happen necessarily in the way that you desire or the way that you want but God cares about righteousness and evil is punished. That is the end of the sentence. That is the entire argument. God cares about righteousness and evil is punished. And maybe it's not, again, the way that you specifically want it to happen, but God will not let it go unpunished. Okay? Even for those, and I've told others this, even for those that experience the grace that Christ has won for us on the cross, there is forgiveness for that sin, but there's a difference between forgiveness and no punishment. We receive no punishment from the standpoint of we don't die after this life. We get to experience eternal life, but we still have to stand before God and give an account of our lives, of all the stupid and terrible things that we have done hopefully along with some good, but I am telling you, I, I dread that. 
That is punishment for me. Not saying there won't be more, but, but to have to stand before God and readily admit the things that I have done, that which happens in the darkness will be brought to the light. Those that have wronged you will receive due punishment. It's what takes place. When I think of this instance, I think back to David and Bathsheba, right? So hopefully you know the story. Maybe you don't. But basically, David is a king. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on a roof. Seems like a really weird place to have a bathtub. Uh, she's bathing on a roof. She is the wife of one of his soldiers. He decides that he wants said woman on the roof, Bathsheba. He collects her. He lays with her, as the Bible would say, which hopefully you understand what that means, right? Then he sends her husband off to battle, and guess what? Husband dies. So he commits adultery, he's covetous, and he murders all in one fell swoop. Now, he's not seeing his own sin in this instance, but when he's confronted with it, he recognizes, uh-oh, I have screwed up. And he is truly, truly not just sorry, but repentant of what it was that he had done. It's after this that he is called a man after God's own heart. Okay? Now, is he killed in that instant? Is he smited? Is David now in hell for those things? No. But he still experienced punishment. His nation still went through hardship because of his actions. God had a punishment that equated to or for what David did. And part of that punishment were that his kids were basically going to seek to end his life and take his power for the remainder of his life, right? David experienced grace. He experienced forgiveness, but he still had punishment. We can have both things at the same time. So yes, people who wrong you, people who have wronged you in some of the most serious ways, uncomfortable as it is, I'm telling you today, can and at times will experience grace if they are truly repentant for what it is that they have done in their life. If it's some sorry on the facade, right? It's just, oh, I'm sorry. They're going to get what's coming to them. But they can also still experience grace and still face the repercussions for their actions. God is a just God and justice prevails. The second thing we learn from this situation, I kind of said it earlier, is sometimes we're too close to a situation to see beyond it in the now. And we see this uh, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph is speaking to his brothers, right? Joseph, the amazing coat, jealous brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So I'm going to assume there's somebody who doesn't know this story. Joseph was the favorite son. Uh, my siblings know how this feels because I am also the favorite child, right? But uh, Joseph is the favorite son. He's got a bunch of brothers. They are all jealous. They don't like it. His dad treats him better. He gives him nice things. He is going to put him in power over his brothers. Joseph has this dream. He's really good at interpreting dreams. He tells his brothers, hey, one day I'm going to be in charge of you. And they're like, you're the youngest brother. Shut up, right? They get annoyed with him to the point where they're like, okay, we're going to throw him in a well. They throw him in a well. They take his coat. They kill a sheep. They cover the coat in sheep's blood. And they're going to go present it to dad. Uh, and they're going to leave him there to die. 
Well, one of the brothers feels a little bit bad about it. And so he's like, hey, let's get you out of the well, but we're going to sell you into slavery. So then he gets sold into slavery, ends up in someone else's household. Someone else's wife tries to do things with him that he shouldn't be doing with someone else's wife. And he flees, but then he gets in trouble for it anyways. And he ends up in prison. And so here's his story. Like, Brothers hate him, try to kill him, decide we won't kill you, we'll just make your life a living hell. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in this household. He then gets put in prison. And it's during this time in prison, he gets introduced to the king. He was able to uh, tell the king about his dream and what it means. And through all of this scenario and situation, he is put into a high place in the kingdom of Egypt. And because he's put in this high place, he saves numerous lives. He's able to explain that a famine is coming, that they should store up goods and food and grain, and they do all this. And so when the famine hits, people don't just die like what would have happened if he hadn't prepared the kingdom for this. His brothers did not mean for him to be exalted by the king to the point where Joseph had the second amount of power, so to speak, right next to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Joseph. They did not intend for that to be the case. And I can promise you that when Joseph is thrown into the bottom of this old well, he's not thinking, gee, can't wait to see what God's going to do next. And when they take him out of the well, and he's like, oh, thank goodness. And like, you're with them now. We sold you for this. And he's like, I, I can promise you at that moment, he's like, I can't wait to be a slave. Wonder what God's going to do with all this. It's going to be a great story. Right? And as he is in Potiphar's house and he's, he, he's, kind of getting influence there. And Joseph is a handsome fella. So he's probably feeling really good about himself. And Potiphar's wife is like, you're a handsome fella. Come here. He's like, I'm not doing that. And then he ends up in prison. He's sitting in prison and he's probably not thinking to himself, God, this is awfully clever of you. Pretty funny. Can't wait to see what else you throw me into next. That's not happening. No, it took years it took years for Joseph to have perspective. It took years. You can't see what God's doing right now. I don't expect you to. It may take years. It may take decades. But the magnificence of our God is that he can take evil that is perpetrated on you by your fellow man, and he can find a way to use that for your good. He can find a way to bring that about for you to such a, an outcome that maybe it gives you influence. It allows you to serve others. It allows you to empathize with others. It allows you to spread the kingdom of God through what some idiot did to you years ago. God can say, I know that this evil was perpetrated on you, but this evil is not your story. Your victory will be your story. That is God's promise. That is what he's telling Judah and Habakkuk. Now, they're not going to like what's about to happen. They're not going to enjoy the Babylonians, okay? It's just not going to be the case. So my last point of just, hey, just so you know, when you're calling out and crying out to God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you acting? Hey, be careful what you wish for. And I don't necessarily say that in like a threatening way. I, I don't mean that at all. But be careful what you wish for because sometime an act is so evil that what you really want is destruction. What you really want is destruction. And I get that. And oftentimes we can just go off. Like, hey, I've seen enough. Spout blown. 
you're going to hear how I feel. And I think that's kind of what we get from Habakkuk in the first four verses. He's seen enough. He's had enough. He, his emotions can no longer be contained. He doesn't know what to do with them. They're explosive. They're coming out. God, hey, where are you? And God's saying, don't worry, I'm coming. Don't worry, it's coming. We want justice. We want people to get what we think it is that they deserve. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Large-scale justice so often throws the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? Large-scale justice so often throws the baby out with the bathwater. Sodom and Gomorrah, remember Abraham is bargaining with God. What if there's his cousin Lot's there and he's just like, hey, what if there's just, you know, what if there's 100 righteous people? Yeah, I won't. What if there's 50 righteous people? I won't. What if there's 20? What if there's 10? And God's like, okay, enough. Like, if there's somebody righteous, we'll get them out. And so basically, it boils down. it's just Lot's family. But God gives him instructions like, hey, as you go, nobody look. You don't want to see it. And what's Lot's wife do? Women. Y'all just want to know what other people are doing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't. Men do too. And she looks back, and then what? Stone. Pillar. Right? Large-scale justice so often throws the baby out with the bathwater. And so a lot of times when God is bringing justice, some of us, some of you, some of those who maybe necessarily don't deserve the way that justice is going to be served are going to be swept up in that justice. I guarantee you there were people in Judah when the Babylonians came and when they swept through like the desert wind collecting slaves like sand, that some people who were not being unjust, some people who were not wronging their neighbors fell victim. And so... Understand that when we are crying out for justice, when we are crying out for God to move, at times, God's justice affects those who don't deserve outcomes. And I can think of some major instances in our country, and we're getting into some uncomfortable territory when we talk about this. I can think of some major instances in our country where our country was very far from God and big things happened. And as a Christian community, we wouldn't typically say, this is God's judgment. This is God's justice because frankly, it doesn't do a lot for the kingdom of God. In today's day and age, what it would really do is kind of push people away. But sometimes people need to hear that we serve a just God. And when injustice is happening everywhere, justice will be served. And sometimes that happens through some major cataclysmic events that calls people attention back to what's important. And unfortunately, sometimes the baby's getting thrown out with the bathwater. What I need all of us to understand, what I need to understand, what I need you to understand, is that God cares. He does care, even in the times where it maybe feels like he doesn't. He cares, he knows, he sees, and he acts. And maybe you're not seeing justice served as quickly as you'd like or how you'd like, but I promise 
that that punishment is being enacted upon those who deserve it for their so grossly ungodly actions. Justice will be served very often in this life. And if it sure doesn't seem like in this life, if you believe the God of the Bible, if you believe in the account of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, if it doesn't seem like justice is being served in this life, then you better believe also that it definitely will be served in the next. And this is God's response to Habakkuk. Next week, we're going to look at a uh, second complaint from Habakkuk where after getting this response, he thinks, maybe I don't want this. Uh, Okay, it sounds sort of good, but maybe we could change a few things. That's kind of what we're going to look at. And again, it's one of those instances where it shows the type of real relationship that we can have with God. And it's one of those things I talked about in week one where we see an instance where we can both question God and wonder what God's doing, but also express steadfast faith in Him. And so I hope, I hope that if you weren't here last week and you didn't see that sermon, you'll go back and watch it. You can skip the worship. Don't tell the worship team I said that. You can skip the worship. Just watch the, pa- the, the, the passage, right? Just watch the sermon. And then come back next week because there's more. Okay, there's more. Habakkuk complained. God responded. Habakkuk complains again. And guess what? God will respond again. You won't want to miss it. Okay, you won't want to miss it. Let's pray, shall we? God, I come to you right now. I come to you today. And the first thing that I want to do is thank you for who you are because you are a God who will allow us to express genuine concern to you. You are a God who desires an authentic relationship. We can be open with you. We can be honest with you. We can tell you exactly how we feel. We can still have faith and express confusion. We can seek and when we do these things, God, you are a God who will respond. You don't have to, but you choose to. You love us enough to do so. Lord, sometimes we are so hyper-focused on what's happening to us in the, in the moment that it's happening that we don't see the bigger picture. We don't see how this could be used for our good. We don't see how we can use our trials to... to to, in tribulations to, to change the world for Jesus, to spread the kingdom of God. But Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who are struggling in the midst of those battles who aren't seeing the why behind what's happening. God, I pray that you would start to change and mold our thought process, that you would allow us in this time when we are experiencing just utter confusion and devastation, that you would allow us to to take a step back, to take a step back and to trust in you and to to trust the process, to look for the ways that you are molding us, to look for the ways that you are changing not only our life, but how you might change other lives around us through us. Our stories are powerful. Our stories have the ability to change the lives of others. That is a gracious gift that you have given us. You are a God who cares about justice. You are a God who cares about right and wrong. You are gracious, but
but you will also punish when punishment is required. And God, we can trust you. We can trust you to have our back. We can lay down at your feet those things that make us anxious. We can turn them over to you and focus on the things in our life that you have given us that bring us joy. Our past does not have to be our present. What someone once said we were does not have to be who we are. You change all things. You change all things. And God, when you commit, when you commit to that change, you sweep through like the desert wind and change comes. Help us to lean into you. Help us to trust you. Father, we love you. We ask for these things in Jesus' powerful, powerful name. Amen. Uh, Jake's going to be back there under that television on the right if you need to pray with somebody. Uh, will you... Jerrica's going to... I'm going to have her go over stand on that side if you would like to pray with maybe a, a lady and not Jake or myself. Uh, she would love to pray with you. Um, and I pray that you would, you know, step out in faith and, and go talk to her. I will be directly in the back. If you'd like to pray with me, I definitely want to pray with you. If you need to talk about what it means to be a Christian, uh, I say this almost every week, but that is the most important discussion you can ever have. And you should not wait another Sunday, another minute before you have that conversation. So come have that conversation with one of us. We want to talk to you about that. If membership's a thing that you're interested in, you can talk to us, uh, talk to me after and kind of talk to you about that process as well. But otherwise, right now, what I want you to do is I want you to stand. I want you to worship. I want you to reflect. And if you're dealing with one of those things in life where you aren't seeing the why, why? And the answer may be because of the evil of man, just so we're clear. But if you aren't seeing the why, take that to God. And maybe he can show you how he's going to take that thing and he's going to use it for your good and for the good of others. It may seem impossible. I have been there. It may seem impossible. But if you will allow God to act, if you will allow God to move, he will. Stand with us and let's worship now.